don't bury the supports. Unearth them and honor them and let's engage in the practice of gratitude. What are all of the wonderful resources and supports that I have access to so that when there's a challenge here or when I'm depleted in this situation, I have these other supports that I can turn to. This is Healing Justice, a podcast bridging conversations at the intersections of collective healing and social change. I'm your host, Kate Werning. Mark Fairfield has dedicated his life to uprooting a toxic culture of individualism. His work on relational practices has deeply impacted me, ranging from how I show up in my organizing to the way that I communicate in my marriage. And this week, I'm talking with him about relational culture, factors for resilience, his work with ACT UP, supporting caregivers during the AIDS crisis, bullying as a euphemism, and failure. Mark was the founder and executive director of the Relational Center, which is a nonprofit community organization in Los Angeles that exists to rescue and preserve the important social ties that we as humans depend on for our health and well being. Mark is a leadership coach, a consultant for organizations, and is a trained psychotherapist. His experience in ACT UP helped him understand how movements with a strong emphasis on collaborative action and wider thinking can catalyze vitality and well-being by supplying a local social infrastructure that encourages people to look after one another. I love having this conversation with Mark. I feel like he has so much to teach us from the psychotherapist perspective about how critical our relationships are and how we can build them through movement by giving people a sense of support in a world that is denying us so many supports and also creates a place where people can express their contribution. So you'll hear it directly from him. Thank you for being here with us, and here we go. Hi, Mark. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Kate. Thanks for having me. <laughs> I am so excited that you're here because you have done a lot of the groundwork that has really deeply, deeply influenced um, the Momentum community and some of the movements that I'm part of mm. um, and have been really grateful to learn from you mm. and the relational methodologies that you've created and built upon in your work um, mm. with the Relational Center as the mm. founder. Um, and because your work is so deeply tied to kind of connecting to ourselves and our own stories and then connecting to others in that way too, I would love to just hear a little bit about your story so that people can get to know the why of what brings you to this work. Cool. I'm happy to share some of my story. Um, I never questioned that I was loved, not by my family, to grew up in a Sicilian family. My grandparents were immigrants from uh, Palermo. And what I felt and what I saw um, was <clears throat> a real devotion uh, and a commitment to um, looking after and looking out for mm. the people you love. Every Sunday, was a family dinner around the table at grandma's house. 
abundance, I guess, would be the best word to describe <laughs> everything about that experience. Obviously, you know, first and foremost, the food, the kinds of food, the amount of, of, of food, mm -hmm. lots of people sitting around the table, often more chairs than really adequately can be accommodated <laughs> by, <laughs> by the size of the table. Um, and, uh, and then the stories, the stories that people would tell. A lot of humor, of course, mm -hmm. um, but at the end of the day, it was all a part of a ritual that really affirmed that we belong to each other. And that because we belong to each other, we can feel confident and safe that we have value, that we'll wake up tomorrow morning, that we'll be okay. And uh, as I say that now, as we're sitting here together, I think, gosh, what a privilege. Mm. What an amazing resource that, you know, sadly, many people, you know, don't have. Many people couldn't, you know, tell that story. Now, I'm not trying to paint this picture of an entirely rosy, <laughs> you know, childhood. There were challenges, there were problems, there were secrets, there, there were dark things. Um, but it's almost as if I can cope with that because I had this other thing that I could really take for granted. Later, I um, was sort of inadvertently, it's a funny word to use, enrolled in a, um, a fundamentalist evangelical Christian academy. My parents wanted me to go to private school. This one was super close, so the drive would be short. <laughs> and they, so they enrolled me, you know, my first experience of school. And um, that was a very different culture. Mm. And it really intensified my sense of being different. Um, also, really not very many other kids had immigrant, you know, relatives. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, eventually I would come to start feeling in my body that, you know, I was gay. I didn't have that word for it then. Mm -hmm. um, and in a way, actually, that was kind of foisted upon me because other people seemed to notice that even before I did. And those were the days, you know, when you, you probably didn't want to... Mm be noticed as that, <clears throat> certainly not in that environment. Uh, I was in that school for 13 years, and six of those years, really right in the middle, I was pretty brutally bullied. Mm. Um, you know what? I want to say, I think the word bully is a euphemism. Mm. I was physically assaulted, mm. I was sexually assaulted, mm. and I was intimidated, and I was abused on a daily basis for six years. I would walk into a space, and it would pull for disdain, contempt, disgust. And so I learned in that environment that I was loathsome. And I, but I would go home, mm. and and remember that I was loved. You know, you just get those immediate signals of like, oh, it's good that I came in the room. You know, like I add something that people like. Mm -hmm. And I ha so I had this remarkable experience. You know, I, I wish I didn't, <laughs> honestly, because you know, the, 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 the distress that's left over from, from the thing is, 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 is still a, a challenge for me, you know, to this day. But I can certainly, you know, uh, feel some gratitude for, you know, the learning that came 
uh, out of that for me. And it, it just, because I had to for my survival, I learned that you, you have to figure out the rules in any social environment uh, for uh, how to get empathy from mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. kind of came in handy later in life because I, I actually think that's not a bad way of thinking about what it's like to step into a new culture. That may be one of the first things that happens to us as a result of, of, of crossing a border mm -hmm. into a new mm -hmm. sort of cultural space is uh, we're oriented to who will understand me. So I kind of hung out at the border mm. of multiple, you know, sort of culture spaces, as it were. And, um, and my resilience to that and my, my capacity even to, like, survive and endure mm. um, uh, the, the violence and, and the assaults to my self-esteem, you know, I think really came from this unquestioning... Mm. Um, recall and and access to the unambiguous clear loud signals of love and acceptance that i had access to that were my birthright mm. can i ask you something about that so you have me thinking and i know in a bit i, I want to make sure you get to share another part of your story about um coming into the movement but because yeah. of the work you do around relational culture mm -hmm. i i have a question around like what is the balance of being able to generate a resource of belonging internally for ourselves, but also how much of it can we actually not do for ourselves? Yeah, great, great question. When you see evidence of resilience, hmm. you know, which let's say is like an extreme challenge that you, you weather the storm, it doesn't take you down. Mm -hmm. It might wear you down, but you come out the other end. So we can't live in the circumstances of being worn down our entire lives with no break and pull through that. Mm. Uh, it's, it's not okay to be encouraging people to find strength and resilience without adjusting mm. the structural and institutional and cultural conditions of, uh, that impoverish uh, us, you know, that deny us the support that we need. That is not okay, right? Mm. But but we do need to weather storms. It's not going to feel safe and, 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 and supportive all the time, even in the best of situations. And what the resiliency literature um, does so well is it defines what, what's called protective factors, these conditions, bonding and, and care and um, resonance and appreciation and invitation and affirmation that if we're exposed to them, will um, increase the chances that we'll be able to weather those storms later, you know, mm. down the road. Mm. And the earlier that we have access to those protective factors, uh, the better. But, it, but, but, but we can locate those conditions all the way through the lifespan. Mm. Mm -hmm. that, that does make me think, because my friend um, Teresa Pasquale Mateas, who is a collaborator on this podcast, is a trauma therapist. Yeah. And we've done sort of like workshops for resilience for activists and people mm. with living in identities with multiple marginalizations in the society. Mm. And she, she's talked a little bit about this research on resilience mm. and how like certain experiences of being able to draw upon a sense mm -hmm. of belonging mm -hmm. or safety or whatever those mm -hmm. factors are, yeah. 
um, predict yeah. how we can weather struggle when we face it. That's right. Yeah. And for us, that brought up a little bit of like grappling because when you think about who has access to those experiences, right. it's really correlated with privilege. And and yet, like, there's a lot of ways in which people with a lot of privilege are very unresilient because of lack of experience. Sure. And, you know, I also think about the ways that um, folks who have suffered together a lot also bond together a yeah. lot and have each other's backs and are generous. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the correlation around, like, who gives more yes. money and who makes more right. sacrifices, right. right? Like, right. Yeah. Um, are often people who actually have less access to material yeah. resources. Yeah, that's right. And yeah, so I just find myself grappling with like, well, if you grow up with a lot of support, then you have this reservoir of resilience that you can lean on. Mm -hmm. But also, is there like, what are those predetermining factors that kind of fill up your cup to be ready and resilient that might not only be about like material conditions and and peace at home? right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's actually really interesting. The the, the answer um, is actually a little exhilarating. <laughs> um, there's sort of three uh, categories of protective factor conditions. Yes, the first is absolutely support. Sometimes they refer to it as a caring surround. But the support that you have access to has to come alongside a challenge that makes the relevance of that support, the usefulness of it, the purpose of it, um, absolutely crystal clear to you. And if you don't face challenges that call upon the supports you have access to, then the supports are useless to you. And often the problem is that the people who are really insulated with that much privilege are not the ones who are encountering the kinds of challenges that Mm. those supports would be really useful in. Mm. The third factor, which is also super relevant and I get really jazzed about, is um, opportunities to make a contribution. Mm. So basically, the protective factors come out of events that happen in people's stories where they confront a challenge or a struggle, they find access to the support that they need in order to rise to that challenge, Mm -hmm. and then they have to lead. They have to make a contribution to what the solution is. So that piece around make a contribution Mm. is so cool Mm. because I feel like sometimes when we get into a conversation about healing, Mm -hmm. it does become very like withdrawn and individualized. Um, And that things like going out and taking risks in your leadership and hitting the streets and being part of something bigger and giving of yourself Mm. are often not categorized in the healing category, but that act of, I mean, Mm. I saw it foundationally when I was working in the immigrant rights movement and with young people whose parents were facing deportation and Mm. would get up and make speeches and come out as undocumented, like the the action piece of that, the reclaim, the contribution was so very much their healing Mm. Um, that, that this dichotomy of like, take a break and go heal or be here and make a contribution, but the assumption that that's going to ultimately be extractive. Yeah. And then you're going to have to go take a break again. Yeah, like, yeah, there, yeah. it has to be this cycle. 
I think is something that we're just really centrally grappling with in, yep. in this podcast and in the movement. Sure, and, um, so yeah, I'd love to hear a little bit about like, how did this analysis play into, um, kind of the social justice work that, that you've done and that you're observing? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah. What's the connection there and what, what was your personal connection? Yeah. Well, um, so fast forward, you know, I, I obviously survived uh, school. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> I got through. I, you know, thank you, Grandma. <laughs> uh, and thank you, like, I could name so many teachers, mm. you know, and sort of best pals who just, you know, would give me, just re- remind me of my humanity. But um, I ended up moving to New York, you know, mm-hmm. when I was 22 and um, was enrolled in a, a Columbia School of Social Work for a master's in social welfare, you know, which then opened up really this this question for me of like, you, okay, you know you want to be helpful. <laughs> so I knew that. I knew that there was something around the social environment that I felt called to. But, you know, it was the sort of early days for me. And it was, I suppose, just lucky that here I was in New York City in the early 90s, which was really the height of the AIDS crisis um, and at the epicenter of it. Mm. And honestly, the reality uh, for me was I, I had postponed embracing my sexuality, you know, the, this, this thing that everybody else seemed to know before I, did, <laughs> before I did and attack me for it. But I, so no wonder I postponed embracing oh, it. Wow. But I'd really put that off for so long and when i when i finally surrendered to it it was in a time mm-hmm. when if you're gay and you're having sex mm-hmm. the choice to have sex was risky mm-hmm. it already sucks you know big time to 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 live under the 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 oppressive conditions of being told that who you are and who you love and what turns you on and even if you don't love but you're just turned on you know like that somehow that's repugnant and 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 takes your birthright away mm. takes your sense of belonging away mm. it already sucks mm-hmm. that that's going on and then you finally find the courage the resilience the support whatever to say well forget about that I'm gonna just embrace this and uh, and then you're risking, you know, getting an infection that's going to lead to your certain death. And I want to say it w- it just meant certain death back then. Mm-hmm. So I really got that, like, oh, that dilemma matters to me and, 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 and bonds me to uh, other people who are similarly situated. And so I thought I need to be a part of you know, a, a, a bigger picture that's confronting this. So I sort of signed up for, put me in an AIDS-related, you know, placement, you know, in my second year of my program. And I got mm-hmm. placed on the inpatient AIDS-dedicated unit at St. Vincent's Hospital. Mm-hmm. My job was going to be to sit at the bedside of very young people who are dying, mm-hmm. to design people's deaths you know like i i to to figure out like how what how do we ensure that people will die the most dignified death Mm. um and as you might guess based on my story to me the dignity would come from are you dying in a way where you know you belong you're loved you're cared for Mm. um you're valued um 
So I had to figure out how I was gonna do that. I mean, quite frankly, I, my first thought was run. <laughs> like I, I actually, this is too big. It's too scary. Um, but one of the things that that recruited me to stay was. Uh, and this was the St. Vincent's AIDS Center was huge in the 80s and 90s. It was it 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 was a beloved community and it was vast. There was outpatient programs or all of it. it was social workers and nurses and physicians and pastoral care people. It was it was huge. And sure enough, the community that was holding that work that I stepped into was like my Sicilian family expanded you know to a much larger circle of people except they were different it wasn't so tribal they weren't all the same there's a lot more diversity and i saw a lot of examples of like just people who were just moved because they cared maybe they didn't share a lot in common but neighbors helping neighbors friends moving out of their homes setting up you know in the apartments of the their friends who were you know dying um putting their lives on hold basically because this was a crisis a huge crisis and um and and people really uh moved to um to create together um the conditions that that would resist the vision of disposable humans. Mm. And I was deeply moved by this um and also inspired because I thought oh they might be doing it better than grandma did. Interestingly, like one of my contributions in the AIDS movement was uh, I I did a lot of cultivating uh, uh some tools and practices for caregivers to stay engaged in the work that they were doing because I got that it was the caregivers who were actually standing in that gap that had been created by institutions that and policies that were failing, you know, huge swaths of 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 humanity at that time. And uh I uh I I got really interested in that and I you know, I guess there was also a point at which I thought Well, I guess I'm a caregiver too. So maybe th- this is also a way for me to look for my beloved community so that I continue mm-hmm. to have access to the conditions that will remind me that I belong. I don't think it even became so obvious to me mm-hmm. until later after I'd sort of stepped a little bit outside of that that, you know, frontline work that what I was doing <laughs> was noticing that a whole part of the population was being bullied brutally bullied to the point of be- of being left to die and many many people in the world stood by and let it happen and the bystanding phenomenon was probably one of the most painful parts of my own experience of having been bullied i don't actually even remember the names and faces of the people who attacked me in school but i remember the names and faces of the people who stood by and let it happen so i just knew in that moment i guess i can't stand by i mm-hmm. i i have to step into this um but flip side of that is i have the support to step into this mm-hmm. so much later i kind of pieced together oh i bet those kids and maybe even those teachers 
who stood on the playground and watched as 30, 40 kids piled on top of me and shoved my face into the dirt and made me eat the dirt. I bet there was some way that they didn't feel supported to take action. That maybe they were deeply disturbed. You couldn't read it on their faces, but that they were scared because there wasn't an or organized, coordinated effort. There wasn't a culture. There wasn't a community uh, to make it possible to, to take that stand. So that really uh, shed light on why this particular moment in my own story um, had such a, a deep impact on me because it was the resilience, it was the protective factors for me. The challenge was there, the support was there, and the opportunity to make a, a very special kind of contribution all came together. And in that moment, then, I was resonating with all the other moments where those factors converged in, you know, in my, in my youth, in my family. And it, 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 you know, made a significant difference in how I saw, you know, what my role would be moving forward. Hi there. This is the segment of our show where we pause for some affirmations from community voices. This segment is about creating space to celebrate together, to grieve, to honor, and to uplift. And not to sell, promote, or recruit, but actually take some space for ourselves. And we're really grateful this week to welcome shout-outs from Marsha in Detroit and from Mary Ann in London. Here's Marsha. Peace. This is Marsha from Detroit. I want to offer a huge shout out to Sawatu. She is a mother, community leader, friend, environmental justice activist who's been fighting for decades for healing in Detroit through fighting for access for Detroiters for clean water and fresh air. She is currently sentenced to two years in prison and is now behind bars and pregnant because she stood her ground when her family was being threatened. We'd like to invite you to be a part of Sawatu's freedom team by emailing us at healingbychoice at gmail.com. Please join us and so many others who are in Detroit and nationally, such as Patrice, who's a co-founder of Black Lives Matter, and Erica of the National Queer and Trans Therapists of Color Network to support Sawatu. And please continue to have in your own thoughts, prayers, and actions others who are unjustly imprisoned, as well as mothers who are pregnant and imprisoned as well. Peace and love for you as well. Peace. Hi, my name is Marianne Clements. I run a project called Jujaza and I'm based in London in the UK. I want to give a shout out to the Women in Power community and particularly the Women in Power community in the UK, um, especially to Elisa Starkweather and Jude Blitz and Nicola Kirk who brought that community into being. Um, women in Power runs a women's initiation program. It's healing work for women and it has made a profound difference in my life and the lives of so many other women and taught me how to both support um, one another and also to use our healing power in the world. 
And secondly, I want to send a shout out to Frida, the Young Feminist Fund, um, and particularly to Devi and Ruby, who are the co-directors. Um, they, the Young Feminist Fund supports emerging young feminists all around the world, supporting groups that no one else wants to resource. And I'm constantly inspired by the way they work, their participatory funding initiative, and their commitment to collective care. Thank you, Marianne and Marcia, for using your voices to uplift others. Our voices are so important, and recognition of one another is so deeply central to the way that we build together. So if you'd like to submit an affirmation of your own to the show to be played on a future episode, check out our website in the upper right-hand corner. There's a button that says Share an Affirmation, or there's a link to get directly to it in the show notes. We'd love to feature your voice in the future. It is important. If you're thinking about sending one in, now's the time. So now we are happy to transition back into our conversation with Mark Fairfield. Let's listen. So it feels just so absolutely paramount that like our movements be intentionally creating opportunities for all three of those things to come together. I mean, the challenges exist, yeah. so we don't have to invent them. To create them. Um, <laughs> but to create the support and then to create such clear encouragements of people's contributions. Yeah. And um, it occurs to me that we haven't defined relational culture, mm. So, which I have experienced as part of the ingredient that makes those three things possible. Yes. So can you just give us a, a little bit about what does relational culture mean? Well, uh, for me, what that's referencing is a commitment to rescuing relationship from uh, an insidious, poisonous, um, lethal drift in our dominant culture towards extreme individualism, which has been gaining momentum really for hundreds of years, engaging in, in relational practices and cultivating relational values is really a form of resistance. You can't invent protective factors. You can't go find them for yourself. The environment has to deliver them to you. And I just, I think that terrifies a lot of people. It sounds very deterministic, like, what, I have to depend on other people and on structures and on other environments to, to grant me access to what I need? I don't like that, right? But come on, that's life. Uh, which is why this problem of, you know, wealth inequality, where all the supports live here and all the challenges live over here, you know, like, is, is, well, it's, it's profane, it's heinous. I'm curious if you would just share with us some very specific examples of, like, what are some of the symptoms of individualism that might be a little sneakier than, like, a literal mm. political speech about people pulling themselves up by their bootstraps, right, right, you know, right, yeah. um, that we can be looking for and actually recognize and say, oh, that's individualism. Right. Sure. Well, you know, in the relational culture practices and curriculum that have been under development for many years now, um, we call them stories of separation. Basically, the three that we 
you know, are, are the most intrigued by, you can always potentially find them in the subtlest of ways. So stories about how humans are higher up in the food chain mm. and therefore positioned to take domination over all of the other forms of life farther down the food chain. We started to see ourselves as not a part of nature, but kind of separate from nature, which is, you know, rampant as an ideology, but particularly in various religious um, uh, histories, um, that there's just like something special about humans, you know, where that, that kind of gives us the right mm. to not just move away from the land, but take command of it and cultivate it and extract its resources and exploit it um, without feeling bad about ourselves. <laughs> because it's, after all, it's there for us and we should use it as we want to. Uh, another story of separation which sort of follows on from that is anybody who is close to the land and in deep communion with the environment obviously is primitive and inferior to us. They haven't caught on yet all of the possibilities of power and control and smartness, you know, that they could engage in, which we call sort of the story of civilization, right? That we, we move into cities, we move out of forests and, and more into these um, arrangements where we're strategic and we take initiative and we're in control and we're in charge. But I think we can sort of see how that then, um, you know, really starts to feed white supremacy. I just want to make this point, at, mm -hmm. you know, right here. Um, mostly when we're calling out racism and white supremacy, we're probably not doing it with quite that long a view. You know, we're probably not thinking about how that practice of um, uh, alienating other human beings is actually something about alienating our own humanity, that part of our humanity which, which grounds us in the earth. That's usually not the association that we're making. Um, so we're making it on principles of justice and fairness, um, but not thinking of it in terms of how it's actually impoverishing all of us mm. of what it is to be human. Mm. And then that last story, which is, we call the story of self-sufficiency, but that which is really just, you know, and it's probably the one that you hear a zillion times a day, which is just, I'm a burden to other people to the degree that I'm vulnerable and need support. Um, in the best of circumstances, I can ask for some support on a temporary basis until I can get back on my feet. So that's an example of like mm. little sayings that we use. Um, I need to snap out of it. Um, uh, um, ultimately, I need to look after myself. Now, all of these things that, that really basically presume this entrenched culture that we live in so much so that I say them and it might even be that people say, well, well, what's wrong with that? It's important mm -hmm. to be independent, right? I mean, we all are working towards independence. And, you know, I just happen to have a really different perspective mm. on that, that um, it feels to me to be deeply informed by a very, very old history, much older than most of the histories that we talk about, mm. that um, helps us to understand, once again, how did human life even emerge and survive in the first place? Mm -hmm. 
which was really about this deeply interdependent arrangement. You know, we're not we're not trying to become independent. And and if you study biological systems, there is no life form that does that. Mm-hmm. This, this actually it doesn't exist. What you see is a very diverse range of connections. So if if there's a strain on on one set of connections, there's all these other sets of connections to compensate for that. And how do you see the term self-care mm. fitting into either the individualism paradigm or or otherwise? And I know this is also deeply related to the work that you've done at the Relational Center sure. around therapy and mm-hmm. healing practice and community. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, what is this f- frame of self-care versus collective care and yeah. how it fits into your framework? I mean, I just think that that's... It's an interest. It's interesting language, right? Um, and 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 rather than problematizing the language, I, I I feel like the the way I would want to answer that question is is what I think is this really important practice of naming the supports. Mm-hmm. You know, like uninvisibilizing the relationships um, that uh, that actually sustain us, and so. Instead of thinking about what are the things that I need to do to take care of myself so that I don't burn out, so that I have renewal and recovery, maybe to just, just as an experiment, <laughs> just reframe it to what are the other relationships that I m- need to make sure I, I don't ignore? That I, what are the other relationships that are important for me to cultivate? so that I can be present and make the contribution in this set of relationships that's so critical and important, you know, to my values. When culture is, is delivering this much poison <laughs> into our world on a daily basis, the only way you can fight that insidiousness is explicitly. And, and so my invitation would be, don't bury the supports. Mm unearth them and honor them and let's engage in the practice of gratitude what are all of the wonderful resources and supports that i have access to so that when there's a challenge here or when i'm depleted in this situation i have these other supports that i can turn to Mm. it makes me think maybe this is um fairly elementary but um I think about some of the things that do feel rejuvenating for me, like, for example, like taking a walk in mm. in nature on a trail yeah. or taking a bath, yeah. that that part of what I'm hearing is that so, like solitude doesn't necessarily equal individualism, no. but that the story, like if my story could be, you know, instead of I need to take care of myself, so I'm going to go take this walk for myself, yeah. my story could be like, my relationship to nature is like one of my critical supports. And so I'm going to go be in relationship with nature right now. Oh, I would even take it a step further and, and, and tell me the tree. Mm-hmm. Tell me the tree that when you get to it, something shifts for you. Mm-hmm. And, and, and when you touch it or the blades of grass, you know, just to, to remember these are living things, yeah. <laughs> you know, and that, and, that, and that we know we need to be in communion with a very diverse array of, of, of life. But in order to ensure that we don't lose access to that, we have to acknowledge what all that other life is giving us. And it might be giving things to us with a cost. 
it might be sacrificing its own life to continue to make ours more sustainable. And it just makes me think about like, what are all of the, what are the labor forces that have made the last five minutes possible in your life? Mm. And how exploited do you suppose those labor forces probably are? Um, uh, we might kid ourselves into thinking, well, they've been compensated. But have they been compensated? Mm. Have they been compensated equal to the amount of life that they have constructed for you and me, right? And I just think, well, gosh, once I start to do that, when I start to take inventory of all the things I don't even know to take inventory of, even just to name all the invisible people that I could never name, mm. in, you know, it, it could be overwhelming, it's very complex, but it adjusts my attitude. It invites me into this space of gratitude and humility <laughs> and wisdom because now I get why I'm alive. Mm. I get what's supporting my life. Well, Mark, there's like a million more things that I want to ask you. <laughs> um, and I think I'll just end with, um, you know, observing the amount of sort of thought and practice and experimentation leadership that you have done around this concept that I've already named has like deeply transformed some of the movement cultures I'm a part of. Mm -hmm. And knowing that you um, were, you know, a founder of the Relational Center and have been there for 11 years sustaining that place. Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. and even in the shift of narrative, like, and the opportunity to make a contribution, which is so central to us, the way that somehow also finding that place to make a contribution and like being accountable to community can still be really isolating. Yeah, yeah. And I'd love to hear you just talk a little bit about like how, how isolation has come up in leadership and yeah. um, any reflections you have for folks who are listening that might mm. be feeling like, you know, somehow I'm surrounded in interdependent community and yet I still feel I experience isolation. Yeah. This is a um, big you know, for me, uh, and, and painful, um, because it's generally something to do with what's happened to me as a leader when I am rudely reminded <laughs> that individualism courses through my veins, no matter how hard I try to fight it. Um, around things like failure, um, or it's actually mostly failure. I'm not, I was about to make a list, but I just thought, you know what? At the end of the day, it's I, all failure. I, it is, you know, it's like I could, I, and I could list dozens of examples of what uh -huh. we would call failure, but, and you know, it's, it is absurd, isn't it? Because like intellectually, we all kind of know that it's all just learning. <laughs> and it's so important to take risks and try things um, so that we can learn. And so you almost can't fail because if you learn something, you didn't fail, right? But that's just not how the situation gets constructed. It's most certainly not how it gets constructed in relation to funding. Yeah. <laughs> right? And, and I can get really worked up about this because it's been really painful for me to chase after financial, you know, support and, and make these deals with the devil <laughs> that 
I know what needs to be done and here's how I'm going to do it and here's how I'm going to evaluate it and here's when I'm going to report back to you. Oh, and by the way, we can do it all on a shoestring. Mm -hmm. And we all know that that's a game, you know, that we're dancing some dance and, and, and hope and, and pray, you know, that somehow it'll all kind of come together and it won't. It won't because the challenge is bigger than the supports we have available to us. And we try to compensate for that by being a bigger leader, mm -hmm. making a bigger contribution, right? Sweat equity. It's the story of my career, basically. You know, the last 30 years has been me compensating for this huge inequality between how big the challenge is and how much support I have available. Yes. And maybe it's not for everybody, but in, in my life, I become a radical individualist when that happens. I attack myself. I, I collapse under the weight of shame. I disappear. I hide. Um, I avoid. <laughs> um, I fantasize about running away. <laughs> um, it, it doesn't even occur to me to turn to someone and say, can you just remind me that I'm valuable? And um, I, I really appreciate you asking this question because I think it's so relevant right now because the, the challenges we face are massive and the sports we have available to us are puny. Mm -hmm. And, and it, it, it makes us think we have to be heroes. Mm -hmm. And when we all come apart unraveled, it makes us think we failed. And, um, you know, I feel quite sad, you know, in, in talking about it because um, occasionally this lovely, wonderful gift happens, which is that someone invites me to have a conversation and asks me questions and, and then tells me back the impact that I've had. And I think, oh, I, I guess I forgot got that or maybe I didn't really ever know it or maybe I haven't really properly taken that in before now but it's such a contrast to how I'm seeing myself and I need to be rescued from this and I don't know how to do it um, all I know to do is to call out that there is this really poisonous story that hard as I try you know to dig it out of my life is always there and I think that's the water we're swimming in. You know, that's our culture. So I really need to ask for, you know, the support of, of people who know me and care about me and, and, and know that I've made a contribution to, to, to take my hand and pull me out of that mess because mm. it's, it's, it's dark. Mm. Thank you so much for your vulnerability there. Mm. I, I, relate to it dramatically i feel connection and resonance with so much of what you're saying mm. and i also imagine just for the people who have um written in on social media and uh through reviewing the podcast and putting comments in on our website the the depth of isolation that i know so many people listening feel mm. in not only feeling like you know i have to do this massive heroic thing mm. like the, the pressure of leadership but then also the isolation of so deeply desiring to bridge mm. uh, the worlds of um, healing and support 
Mm. Uh, with the world of like fighting and confronting mm. unjust systems yeah, yeah. and and how deeply interconnected those two things are but how few spaces exist where we're really embodying all mm. of that work in one place um so i know one of the things you're going to do for us is give us a practice mm. that is the beginning of trying on like for folks who have listened and are feeling converted and, and committed around mm. uh, uprooting individualism mm. and are going to go back to the people that they're inter- interdependent with yes. and be like, we got to uproot individualism. <laughs> right. um, how do you do that? <laughs> right. um, and uh, Adrienne Marie Brown says, this is like my favorite quote from her. Um, Interdependence is a, a series of small repetitive actions. Right. And so, what is the practice you can offer us to start with some small repetitive actions together? Totally. Thanks. Thanks. Um, this is uh, a practice that um, we, we call it sharing resonance. And, and it's a thing we usually pair with um, inviting people to share a very particular kind of story that's really been designed, you know, sort of shaped around, well, if the stories of separation are killing us, what are the stories of connection uh, and how do we find them? And we can all find them because if you're alive, you, you have benefited from connection, mm-hmm. you know, but we, you know, we have to dig, we have to uncover it. Um, but, you know, the companion piece to that is um, that sometimes it's hard to remember the connections that have sustained us uh, until we have a fresh experience of connection again. So in this sort of art of story crafting and story sharing that is kind of part of this relational culture building, you know, um, strategy, um, there's a really important element that we call sharing resonance, which is just a very simple way of signaling Mm. for people to signal to one another um, how they're relating Mm. to the stories that they're sharing with each Mm. other. Amazing. So for folks who want to learn this practice of sharing resonance, you can download the next episode. Um, If you don't see it yet, it's because our conversations come out on Tuesdays and practices come out on Thursdays. Um, But join Mark as he explains the process of sharing resonance that you'll be able to use in any group or team that you're working in to bond a little bit deeper and to build some more common ground around a sense of shared connection and interdependence. Um, So deep gratitude to you, Mark, for joining us and sharing your wisdom. And thank you for your decades of contribution to this work. I appreciate you saying that. Thank you. Thank you for welcoming me. It's been a pleasure. You just heard a conversation between Mark Fairfield and Kate Warning. You can download the corresponding practice to learn a practical building block in how to embody relational culture. This practice is called sharing resonance. And as always, you can contribute to supporting this podcast at patreon.com slash healing justice. We are a volunteer project and run entirely on your free will offerings. So we are so, so grateful to those who are sustaining us on Patreon. Please consider joining us. You can also share an affirmation or a gratitude to be played in a future episode by visiting our website and looking in the upper right-hand corner where it says share an affirmation. You can click through and submit something to share. 
The links are in the show notes to find our email list, social media, to stay in touch. We share some pretty gorgeous stuff on social media, um, quotes, things that will remind you of what you learned in this episode every single day. So check that out. And a big thanks to Yoshi Fields for content editing this episode and the mixing and production that's done by Zach Meyer at The Coal Room. Give it up for our amazing, talented volunteers that are showing up every week to do that work. Thank you for your commitment to building movements that liberate all of us, including you. And we'll hear you next week.